Welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and our gaming group. I am Trey Alsop, and I am your host for this episode. Today, I am joined by a guest from deep in the heart of Texas. It is our good friend, Mark Now. How you doing, Mark? Hello. Very, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Mark, why don't you tell uh, the people listening in who you are and why we would possibly be friends with you? <laughs> Certainly. Uh... Hey, Trey, I'm not getting any waveform on mine here. You're looking good to me? Okay. Yep. Let's continue. Uh, I'm Mark. Uh, professionally, I've been making video games for a little bit more than 25 years now. Um, and then amateurishly been making tabletop games for me and my friends and playing the heck out of any game I can get my hands on for as long as I can remember. Mark, you were also part of the uh, Iocane Productions. You were one of the three legs of the stool, along with uh, me and Tom having done many LARPs at at Gen Con. That's that is that you can, that you cannot deny. And I would also uh, it, I I would not deny that you will not deny it. Um, I would not. You would also, not. you consulted on three of the games that I have done through Wishcraft uh, Production as well, both of the Situation Room Experience games and the Decision Center at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum, which yes, is still running fun there. times and stuff. I'm very proud that we did. That's awesome. So Mark is here in Austin or here in Texas. I'm broadcasting from Texas today, but you were originally, you're a Californian. Is that something you want to admit? Yeah, I was born in California. Uh, freely, Yes. I mean, here I don't talk about it too terribly much when I'm talking with the locals. But uh, I mean, I've been here now for 15 years, and this is the the house I've been in the most. So, all right, this is round 13, turn seven, and today we are going to talk about the 2018 release, Guns Shun Clever. Did I say that remotely close? Sounded good to me. Sounded good to you. I'm not. I'm not a native speaker, but it, it got past me. Okay. Uh, the English language title is uh, That's Pretty Clever. Um, and for our member segment, we are going to talk about games as metaphor. So, which is the whole, like, you know, I guess point of this podcast is that, Mark, you felt like you had something to say and you had to go and record it because people had to hear you on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more... I hear the podcast. You guys are having a great bunch of fun. I would like to join in. And one of my brain meanderings that I took on while I was driving after I listened to a podcast, I started thinking a whole bunch about this topic. And I thought, hey, I'd love to talk to you know you and Tom and the rest of them about this. And then, hey, you know maybe the rest of the Game Brain universe might want to listen in. I think originally um, we wanted to record this at BrainCon. Didn't work out. We played... Too many games. Uh, we had too, too much fun. Too busy playing games. Too bu- we were too busy, but uh, Mark was part of the inaugural uh, BrainCon uh, a couple weekends ago. So speaking of games, why don't we get to this week's Game Night. 
Well, I've been here in Texas, but I did get a, a report from Tom that uh, they did in fact meet on Friday and they played a couple of games. They played a game of Paris and they also played a game of Embarcadero. So um, we're gonna; those will be in the show notes. Mark, you you said you have you attended a LARP. Tell us about this LARP. I did. Uh, this is a local LARP that there's a local LARP company um, that's been doing quite a number of different events. You know, they went on hiatus for COVID, but for quite a while, they've got a good team uh, that work well together, experienced, called Jackalope Productions. And over the weekend, I did a LARP that was called The Night in Question. Uh, the main event itself happens from about 6 p.m. to a little bit after midnight. And it's the story of, this, of, the, of the, the LARP that we're all participating in is there's a rave in Austin and the place burns down and, and there's no survivors and it's all very mysterious. But what's really happening is this is a bunch of sabbat vampires uh, turning humans into fellow vampires so they can prepare for a big war. Um, and gotcha. the, the LARP follows a uh, very Nordic sort of uh, stylings, which is nothing bad can happen to you unless you agree to it. You have to have consent explicitly on both sides before you do anything to anybody. Uh, people are arranging ties and storylines ahead of time. The players are. So it's not, it's not a competition. It's a cooperative storytelling thing. And, um, one of the things I really liked about that game is it's free from some of the toxic power plays that I, I see in some other games. Uh, yeah. this one, it's just for the most part, it's just a bunch of people having a great time pretending to be vampires and mortals who don't know what's going on. And then a big bloodbath. So this is a vampire game, but is it vampire the masquerade or is it, is it, it is. in that world? Yeah. But it's a different yeah, framing from like the it. normal the normal vampire LARP that some of us may have encountered at cons before. Or is it the same? It is. It is. It is. And I think a big part of that is also just the amount of time that's passed since you and I may have done uh, vampire LARPs. Uh, it, it, and it's also it's a different sensibility. Like I said, it's it's more mm-hmm. aligned towards you know what we broadly called Nordic sensibility, uh, as opposed to you know maybe something that was more of an ongoing thing that might have been kind of more connected to more old school tabletop role-playing games. So for, yeah, I'm curious uh, with this LARP, did you, did you like, how involved were you with your own character? Did you generate your character or were you assigned? You are personally close to asking a nerd all about his character. Like, is that, that I don't really care about your character. About your I want to know how it was created. <laughs> I do not want you to tell me about your gotcha. love character. They, they, have, they have writers and the writers are there to make sure that there's enough good stuff going on. That the boundaries are defined uh, and, and writing a bunch of stuff for everybody. But the organizers also do a number of workshops where you get to meet up with other people. And there's also a discord where you meet up with other people, make ties and connections, arrange for scenes you might want to see happen throughout the night. So the character is a combination of, the writers giving you a framework and then individuals working together in order to flesh out some details. Gotcha. So interesting. Um, when we've done LARPs at Gen Con, 
um, we're not, we don't, we do write the, the characters, we do assign them, but we do pretty extensive character surveys and get feedback from people generally, but we, we are not having players generate their own characters. Um, but we also have things like people can refuse their characters. We've had that happen a few times, kind of saying, no, 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 right. that's not what I want to do, um, which is fine. That's totally fine. We want people to be able to play that. And that's the reason we do, we do surveys. But generally, we're not in the realm of like of having players completely gen- generate a character, and we're just throwing in, you know, thirty player generated characters into a vampire convention. Yeah, ours ours were definitely way less freeform than this one is. Uh, you know, not to say that there isn't a structure. There's a there's a very defined structure. And there's a lot of stuff going on, but it's also relies a lot on freeform by the by the players. Uh, the other thing that this group does, which I thought was really cool, is that they have their own software uh, that lets you go in and make choices about your character ahead of time that are sort of, you know, uh, prescribed by the writers. So people can actually go in and pick their own characters within parameters uh, using the software. Well, I'm not sure I know what you mean. So like, give me an example of one of those decisions. I, I, I would go I would go to a website and it would say, here are the different groups that are operating which one of these groups would you like to be in? And it's filtering based upon what type of character I am. I'm a mortal. So it would say, here are the different groups. Then once I okay. picked that, it would say, here's broad outlines of each of these characters. And then once I picked that, I had some customization choices inside there in terms of the way I wanted to kind of slant that character. Like, yeah. And so you kind of get there and you're just like, what sounds good? So if you're on the, if you're on the vampire side of this, would it be like, what clan are you part of? Or was I, I, it more? So I, I, I don't know. Yes, there is some of that going on for sure. Uh, the one time, the one other time I went, I went as a vampire and I went with some friends and one of them had done a thing where you can get the entire pack was written for you. So each of us had back and forth with a writer and we specifically were able to talk directly to the writer about kind of what we wanted to see play out. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Well, why don't we, speaking of conventions, speaking of LARPs, let's get to the news. People may not know that someone uh, actually wrote that song and produced that song. Uh, Mark, do you know who that is? I do. That is that is yours truly. Can you tell I was us? Very inspired because, <laughs> yeah. How did you early make this early song? on? You all were, you all were asking for songs. I uh, I don't know where the idea came from, but, you know, I, I, I decided to make a song for the news segment. I made a bunch of little sound effects. I grabbed that, that voiceover from long time ago and I put them all together and sang some into my microphone and it all kind of worked out and I shipped it off. I think it, um, it's a little bit better than games on the brain, a little bit more professional. Uh, I don't know. Everything were that standard. I think games on the brain generates more buzz for the show, so I think you're winning on that account. More, more controversy. Okay. Um, this weekend <laughs> was Gen Con, and um, Gen Con's where I first met Mark. Gen Con's where we've done a bunch of LARPs together. It's where we've run a bunch of LARPs together. Um, I feel like this is the first time. It was canceled last year. This year, it's back, and this is the first time I've missed it. I think in like ten years. Um, looking at some of the pictures here, it looks like, 
you know, attendance obviously is down, but there was still a lot of people lining up to get into the dealer room on Thursday morning. Uh, yeah, I have two thoughts looking at the picture. One is, wow, that's just not many people waiting for the dealer room. And the other thought <laughs> is, my goodness, that's a lot of people standing real close to each other. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's both like not a, too many and too few in in this photo, yes. I really, I hope um, the convention ends up being uh, people ended up staying safe and it, and it works out. I really do. I kind of feel like Gen Con had to go this year. It might have been a matter of their economic survival, um, especially because I think they're right. like, they're in. I think they're committed to long term leases uh, there in Indianapolis. But um, for my friends that were there this weekend, I. Um, I hope you have a good time. I'm I'm jealous, and uh, we will be back there next year, hopefully. Um, apparently, also they scheduled Gen Con at the same time as a uh, Indianapolis Colts game, and there was a, oh. a lot of interaction. Let's just say interaction between the uh, the Colts fans. Yes, I I, and, I remember even making the clever joke about not knowing what this LARP was that was being played at the same time as the convention, because <laughs> there's a lot of cosplay in football for sure. There is a lot of cosplay. There was a lot of um, displays and looking back and forth between the two the two groups when this has happened before. Because yes, it's either uh, sometimes there's Indianapolis Colts fans. There's also like motorcycle rallies have have been scheduled at the same time as Gen Con uh, over the years. And again, uh, costumes, displays, yep. um, role play. Uh, just a lot of similarities here between these groups, despite our differences. All right. Uh, one thing in the news, uh, we talked to, with Candace a couple weeks ago about and played a game with her called Scout that uh, I really liked. I think everybody who played it really liked. And there will be a new edition of this. Um, and it will be available at um, Spiel 21. Like right now, I think Candace had to order this game from Japan. And um, the new version, it has new art will be in the EU by the end of 2021 and in the US by early 22. So put that on your list. It's going to be like, I can't imagine it's going to be that expensive a game, but uh, Scout as a game uh, to pick up next year. Um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of Gen Con news. I'm not going to do all of like Fantasy Flight's releases for this year, but I do want to hit on a, a few things um, that, I that I have seen that like they're just even coming to Kickstarter this week. Um, New game Forsaken is coming uh, to Kickstarter in 2022. That's from the people that do uh, from Game Tray Game Trace Labs. Um, One Deck Galaxy is now on Kickstarter. That's from the creator of One Deck Dungeon, which I have purchased but still have not played. Um, I believe this is the 25th anniversary of Twilight Imperium, and this may be um, Ben's chance to finally make Tom play that that game with him. Uh, at Gen Con, I think a game that uh, Fantasy Flight announced that looks interesting is uh, Star Wars Outer Rim, and there's an expansion, Unfinished Business. So this is from uh, Corey Kaneska, who has is kind of like Fantasy Flight's main in-house game maker and certainly made many of the games like Battlestar Galactica and I think Game of Thrones that I've played and enjoyed many times. Um also, I noticed that the Robert Ruben Clam uh, Clammer, the guy who invented the game of life, has finally, well, not finally, that's a horrible way of putting it, uh, Ruben Clammer has died. And Game of Life, 
is second only to Monopoly in terms of total sales of board games in the United States. They have sold over 70 million copies of the Game of Life. And uh, Ruben was inducted into the uh, Inventors Hall of Fame, Hasbro's Inventors Hall of Fame, as well as the Toy Industry Hall of Fame. And he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Toy and Game International Excellent Awards, Excellence Awards in 2019. So Game of Life, number two game of all time. Um, one game that we're seeing a lot of pictures of from Gen Con is a new kind of version of Azul, or I guess an, it's not an expansion. I think it's a standalone game using some of the same rules. Um, Azul Queen's Garden. And I think uh, Candace was able to play a demo of that at Gen Con. And this game will be available at Essen 2021. And finally, um, at least on, on my... Oh, no, finally. There's going to be a new Seven Wonders game, Seven Wonders Architects, uh, that I think is going to be more like the actual game. This isn't just like a dual two-player one. This is another seven-player game, I believe. I know I'm just running through all this stuff real quick, but the final final one here is I... There is currently on Kickstarter... Uh, a collaboration between Justin Gary and Richard Garfield called Soul Forge Fusion. Uh, Justin Gary, you would know from Ascension, and Richard Garfield, you would know from Magic the Gathering. And this is, I think this is a game that's kind of in the Keyforge realm. I think that there's, I think they're generating unique cards from this game, but I think part of the game is that it's played in rows or channels. And as you advance your cards, they kind of level up, but I'm always curious to see any kind of card game that Richard Garfield um, comes up with. I still never played Ascension, but um, this one looks, this looks cool. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for people to tell me something like this is great and that I should check it out because I feel like it's too late to get in. Like, I'm not going to start playing Magic the Gathering again. I played it at launch. That's how old I was. I am. I am that old. <laughs> Mark, do you have any thoughts on any uh, on all the news I just ran through there? Uh, I was checking out um, Architects, because Seven Wonders gets a lot of play here. Yeah. And, yeah, it's difficult to discern what it's going to be. But based on the promotional images, it looks like four people were playing it in the promo pictures. So, um yeah, I think I, I mean, saw it's, that it's it can play up to seven. Must check out for us. Yeah. Okay, great, great. I think, I think. Um, so this is this then, is one yeah, you play with your family. Is that right? Yes, the four yeah, of this you. Is, this is there. There are there are games that we can get to the table easily with the family, and then there's games that my younger daughter and I have to recruit from outside the household in order to try <laughs> to muster enough people to play. Uh, so Seven Wonders is is kind of meets the internal bar, <laughs> unlike some other games where we where we do have to find others. All right, um, yeah, your daughter, your youngest daughter, and you you're the serious gamers in the in the family, and then the the, are the other two put up with you. Is that kind of the correct? <laughs> diagnosis? Uh, my wife, there are games that she honestly enjoys and will lobby to play when she gets in the mood. The uh, older daughter, um, for the most part, enjoys video games and other endeavors, creative endeavors, more than board games. Um, so we've got a, a solid two and a half 
and then, you know, have to have to cast the net outside the household to get more than that. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about games on the brain. Mark, what games are on your brain? Well, I, the number one board game that's been on my brain is Clank Legacy. Uh, the reason for that is that we were, well, we've been playing a whole bunch of legacy games and Clank was one of the more recent ones we started playing. And then uh, my daughter, younger daughter, went and took off to university. Uh, right in the mm-hmm. middle of a legacy, if you can believe it, um, which... That doesn't seem right. I mean, that's an interesting, no, it's an interesting display of priorities for sure. Um, so we are in the middle of Clank Legacy, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how that game will continue to develop and where the kind of storyline such as it is takes us. I don't know anything about Clank Legacy, so give me the, the two-line description of what Clank Legacy is and like how it works as a legacy game. Sure. Uh, so Clank itself, the core mechanism is you are deck building and it's competitive. You're, you're going down and you're stealing treasures and you're making a deck that makes you better and better at moving around through the dungeon and getting things and scoring points. Clank Legacy takes you out of the dungeon and puts you on a, on a world map. Uh, and there's two different world maps. One's above ground, the other's kind of the underworld. And does a similar thing, but the narrative picture painting is that it's still competitive, but on the other hand, you all are cooperating and that you're the same guild and there's an enemy guild that you're kind of fighting against. So it's, it's an odd sort of brain space, actually. That's also part of what makes me think about it so much is that there are definitely, I believe, ways that if we were playing it purely cooperative, we could kind of tool the system and be superstars. And mm-hmm. because of the people I play it with, we're all kind of, uh, we're all, we're all at least when we're occupied, when the mental space we're occupying when we're playing this game is more on the let's not compete too hard sort of side of things. Right. So I think, I think we're hitting a soft spot in this game that maybe it wasn't designed for where we are not body checking each other quite as much as I think it was intended to be. Okay, so you're not, um, is this like fantasy dungeon crawling or is it more, like how are, aren't Clank not members of a party is, that are supposed to be coordinating or how, how does it, how does it work? N- no, no, no. You're, you're members of a guild and you are competing for fame, but at the same time, the, the uh, reputation of your guild and how much the opposing guild makes advances on you and kind of is able to mess with your abilities is a cooperative part of it. So it's it's okay. a cooperative legacy bolt onto a competitive game. And I think there's some ways where it doesn't quite work, but there's a lot of ways where it does work. And, mm-hmm. I, and you know, at the end of the day, the fact that I'm thinking about it and want to go back and play it more is, you know, kind of my, my overall judgment is it's, it's at least a thumbs up on that part. When I heard Clink, I mean, I'm when I hear Clink, I'm thinking of like a robot or cyberpunk, like, or is that, <laughs> right, is that completely right, incorrect? Right. Is Clank actually like fantasy? Uh, I, I can see where you would think that it, it is fantasy. And what the word Clank refers to is uh, in the, in the 
then the vanilla game, you are going underneath into an area that is uh, occupied by a dragon and you're all thieves. And okay. there are cards that generate clank. And what the clank will do is it will cause cubes of your color to eventually make its way into a bag that when the dragon attacks are pulled out, if your color cube is pulled out, you take damage from the dragon. And then if you run out of health, then various, you know, then your, your game is over and you might still score depending upon how far you've made it to getting in and out of the dungeon. Okay. And so it is there kind of like a bag? So clank, clank is that noise making. Yeah. Well, it, there's a bag that you don't want your cubes going into. And when okay. you generate noise, when you generate clank, uh, your cubes ah. will eventually go into the bag. Right. So it's like the, the, the noisier you are, the more of your colored cubes will go into the bag, which means you are more likely to be attacked when the dragon attacks. Okay. I, I understand now. Right. So maybe the original title was dope or ouch or then clank. Maybe. <laughs> it could be right. Smash. But no, yeah, that sounds, I don't I've, I thought in clank, like doesn't clank sound like Banjo Kazooie or something that it should be some animated that character who is jump, first jumping the name of it and collecting coins <laughs> yes. or something. Yes. Yes. You know, it's some crazy animal. <laughs> oh, that clank. You can never get that's just down. the way he is with his with his sneakers and his jumping. Are you telling me you were also um, you're working on some games that you want to talk about or that are on your brain? They're on my brain. I, I'm I'm kind of always working on some games. Uh, there was a game that I think I showed you on my phone, which is I I got midway through designing a game and then left it in a Ziploc bag for I think eleven years. <laughs> Right. And I've rediscovered all of these components. It's like I've given myself a gift. You know, 11 years ago, me gave myself a little gift. It's almost like one of these, um, you know, uh, competitions they do where you're given some parameters. And you have to design a game within 24 hours or something. Uh, I have accidentally self done that where I've gifted myself a lot of components. That It's clearly that, that the players are Greek gods and that there's heroes and monsters and quests in the game. And it seems to be, it seems to be kind of a, an area control game. It part of it is right. Uh, but I didn't leave enough notes to myself to know what I was originally thinking. And now I've kind of been trying to reconstruct this game or, or make a parallel game that, uh, because it, I found it and I was like, wow, this is, this is great. I would love to play this game. How do you play? <laughs> and unfortunately I, I hadn't gotten that far. Yeah, no, it did, it did look interesting. It looked like um, a game that you had gotten quite a ways along, but it is like one of those playtesting experiments that if you like took the components of a game and you shoved it in front of people and you made them have to guess how the, the game works, like that's the, that's the mental state that, that you're in. Yes. But I'm, yes. I'm always down, like, you know, Tom always talks about hating fantasy. I'm always down for a Greek mythology themed game so i'm, I'm certainly being oh happy is that right to play, okay, test, well, great. to play test it once you um make up new rules uh to, <laughs> okay. to play this game uh do, do you think that will actually happen or or is this little gift from the uh the past as it as it delivered its its little gift to you and, and now it will move on or uh do you think you'll actually revisit this thing 
I'm in the middle of a house move and then doing all the logistics right. involved with that. And then my normal job and then the, the kid going off to college. I, as soon as all of that chaos is down, this is the thing that I want to jump into. And, and especially if I know that somebody out there might want to play this, uh, that, that gives me all the more impetus to, to make it happen. That's somewhat, that's someone you're talking about, someone other than me. You're talking about your daughter. No, no, I mean you. Yeah. No, oh. One person is enough. One person's enough. I did. Okay. One person is enough. All right. Because I didn't think I read yeah, it I've, I have made, that highly. I have made tabletop games for local conventions just because one person said, hey, I really want to play a game based on, you know, whatever, whatever TV show they were watching at the time. And I said, oh, I, I can probably make that happen. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a good, um, it, like I thought, yeah, that's a, can be a really helpful design exercise when you just know, okay, this person wanted this thing, and you probably know something about that person too. That's I, I've always found it to be better when you know either writing something or trying to design something if you can be like spe- as specific as possible from the get go, rather than okay, now I'm ready, I'm going to design a game, and I can design a game about anything. <laughs> Go right. Trey, be brilliant right. and think of something interesting. Like, no, nah, that's it's terrible. Not, it's terrible. not how it happens. So often the games are like, oh, I I played this game and I hated it, but it did have this one thing that I liked. Like, what was the right way to do this? Or like, um, right, you know, cer- certain mechanisms. Like, this seemed like it was the wrong theme for this mechanism. I, for example, um, you and I played um, Crystal Palace with Tom at BGG yes. Con in 2019. And I, I really liked a lot of aspects of that game. Um, it was kind of an interesting theme. I'm still not sure that those two things really should have gone together. But um, right. for what it's, the, 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 the mechanism that I really liked, like there was a bunch of stuff going on in that game. A lot of stuff going on. It was, you know, it, it was fairly complex. But the dice bidding was the really cool bit. Um, where yeah, you essentially yeah. spend money by allocating the dice behind a screen, and that's like how much you're going to spend on on actions, but you haven't actually allocated where those actions are going to go, and then you're like moving them into different spaces, and you'll compete with other people's bids in those spaces in order to acquire things. And I thought, oh, well, what this game really should have been would be like a college basketball recruiting game. Where these are your <laughs> right, right. these are your yeah. scouts, and you're going to different regions of the country where you know, like, oh, like the East is really packed this year. There's a lot of really AAA talents, you know, or five star talents, whatever the, the the not you know what it's called there in the East, and then some in the West and some in the South, and then you're bidding on, in a sense, like how did you allocate your your scouts there? Generally, it's probably hard to get NCAA uh, licensed material through, but um, I think there's probably like a fantasy version of that. That's, but but you know what I mean, though. It like that's that would totally work. I, think I was even remembering. I think it's a really. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a really interesting mechanic that I would love to see being used in a bunch of different places. And yeah, it's it's one of those things that you know, kudos to the designers there. It's one of those things where you see it and you immediately start thinking of other ways it could be used. Yeah. You know, even when you're in the middle of this game trying to figure solve it, how it how does it work in this game? You're also simultaneously thinking about all the different ways that this might be able to apply or variations of it. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was great. Yeah, and it did have some really interest interesting because it wasn't just like assigning your dice. You had to decide how much you wanted to allocate 
like it was a in a weird way it's a budgeting game because you're deciding like how much am i yes. going to totally allocate and how much can i afford and like it's really easy like that game will totally uh, crystal palace will let you overspend and you know however much rope you need to hang yourself it will definitely give it to you much in like the same way that age of steam will where you're like yeah you can take out more loans bad idea but you and can- you definitely are also the other neat thing about it is you're actively trying to play second guess rock, paper, scissors with the other players at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because if, if there's a bunch of twos out there and I'm one of the few people with a three, I've got a very low cost Trump card that trumps all of those twos. No, I think that's what we really liked was like, yes, that interaction. And then we had the dice and even like what order you put your bid in your bids in felt interesting and you did have to kind of determine like, okay, Tom's got the biggest die there. What do I think he really wants? And, and I, am I even right? Like maybe it was something else, you know, he wanted in because I, you know, it, it's one of those horrible things like, Oh, I just spent a five in that area and someone else comes in with a six, which, you know, given who we play with, that's, that's kind of, I guess, bound to happen. But it was, yeah, it was certainly a very interesting <laughs> headspace that had nothing at all to do with, the world's fair and yes. you know like kind of like pairing together inventors and inventions i just thought like that was where the game missed it a little bit where like there was a more opportunity there to kind of put stuff together because that that core dice bidding thing was so cool so why have why haven't more people ripped off that mechanism i should do it all right so mark um Let's get to our game review. Uh, we were discussing a few things that we could review this week, and you mentioned that you'd been playing Gonshon Clever um, a bunch. So tell us why. I'm going to explain it in a second, but let's tell us why this was the game that you were thinking. Let's review this. Other than I'm making you making a sure, review, a game, yeah. <laughs> well, you have to so review it's, a, it's a game. game. So. It's a game that's that's it's a little outside the range of the sort of game that I would normally be very enthusiastic about, um, but I guess it, it, sh- short answer is in my mind it's the Yahtzee killer, and ah. um, it it winds up doing that so well that I'm actually interested to play it when it comes up. So it's a game that I can play with a wider range of people than I might uh, a game that would be you know closer to my heart. But um, I'm still having a great time, and I think the game does a really a lot of really interesting and good things uh, that make other people want to pay attention to what everybody's doing, which I, I find uh, to be a really nice feature. So, like, yes, this is like Yahtzee. This is a roll and write game. Is like is Yahtzee the original roll and write game? It kind of must be, right? Um, I mean, I, I don't I know guess if it was so. first. I, I like when you think of roll and write, like Yahtzee is absolutely a roll and write game um this one you can play this game solo you can play it with up to four people uh according to bgg it's best at two um they say 30 minute playing time eight and up uh, a weight of 1.89 which makes it seem really light uh, i have an issue with this number because i think that there's actually some very hard decisions <laughs> that you make in this game uh the designer is wolfgang warsh uh we will know wolfgang 
from other games like, well, this, but also Quacks of Quidlinburg, Taverns of Tiefenthal, and Wavelength. So Wolfgang seems to have found a very nice niche on the, you know, more casual side of of the board game hobby, um, and has had a lot of successes there. We were playing Wavelength at BrainCon recently. Uh, artist Leon Schiffer and the publisher was Sch- Schmidt Spiel, and it's been republished all over the world with different publishers. So, like Yahtzee, you're going to have a sheet of paper here, or you're going to play the game digitally, and it'll it'll just record all of this stuff. But on your turn, um, on your turn, this stuff is happening simultaneously, right? I've only played a single player, but you're going to roll no, you six have, you, dice. Yeah, you, no, you have a turn. You have yes, a turn. Okay. That's your turn. On your turn. Yeah. I'm going to roll six dice. Now, unlike Yahtzee that has a bunch of white dice, there are six different color of dice in, in this game. Yellow, blue, green, orange, and purple, and white. White is wild. Each of these other colors has a particular region on this score sheet that essentially has like a different kind of puzzle to it where when I roll this number like a lot of roll and writes, I can then assign this number to one of these areas on the, on the game and kind of exit out. Um, but what makes this different than just, hey, I'm rolling dice and then assigning numbers to where I want them to go is that when you roll the dice, you essentially place them in order from low to high. And you're going to keep three of these, uh, well, you're going to keep only one of these dice after you roll. And the the kind of crazy caveat that was hard for me to wrap my mind around at first is whatever die you take in order to keep all of the dice of lower value than that one, you no longer have access to for that round. And they get put into a tray that are going to become available for your opponents at the end of this round. And so uh, it's very hard to evaluate like what a good roll is necessarily because there's a lot of times like, oh, I'm looking for a certain thing, but if I take that, I'm going to eliminate three of my dice and trying to decide like when you can actually let go of certain dice and when you're kind of just taking low number dice so that I can preserve my options with other dice is this really difficult decision that you make. You're So you're going to do this. You're going to keep a die. You're going to reroll the others the second time. Again, you're going to keep a die. Um, and eliminating any that are lower as you go. And then you're going to do it a third time. And then you're going to get like what the, the tray is going to essentially like be passed to you. And you're going to pick a single die from the dice that the other players pass to you. Is that, is that right, Mark? Right. Yeah. So once, once the, the active player has taken their turn and, and done three rolls and used one die from each of the rolls, there'll be three dice Sometimes there could be more if you've really messed up, but we'll say there's three dice left in the tray. And now the opponents get to pick one of the dice that are left in the tray in order to use that on their own scorecard. Uh, and that's, you know, there's, there's not a, a, a very thick layer of player interaction that you, that's it right there. The player interaction right. is my leftover dice can be used by the other people. Uh, but it is in practice, at least when, when I've been playing, enough to get it so that people are watching what you're doing and you are watching to see what other people need because sometimes that can affect what decision you make about what dice to leave left over. This, yeah, the, 
the th- one of the things I struggle with, unlike playing Yahtzee, where you kind of you you roll and it's like, oh, I got four fives. That's good, right? Um, that's actually good. That's actually good in this game as as well. But because you can only use one of the dice, it's not always obvious like what's actually good or not. Um, so we just kind of like described what a round is. Depending on the player count, you're going to play anywhere from four rounds to six rounds and then compare scores um, during each of these rounds. So essentially you're going to get four dice each of these rounds, but that's before we start kind of adding on all the, the, the little bonus whistle bangs, exploding bonuses. Yeah. bonuses that start to trigger things. So ultimately like a lot of board games that we play where, you know, like when you're starting to combo, like I've, I've got my things together and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do a, so that B will trigger, which is going to give C what I need in order to purchase D and you're kind of queuing these things up. And at the beginning, it seems like, oh, there's no way I, I don't have enough actions to place the dice I need to score all the points that I need to score because each of these five regions is going to each be scored individually. And then your sum total will be all five regions put together plus your foxes. Did I mention the foxes? No, we didn't mention the foxes. The foxes are another kind of bonus, which will score you the amount of points equal to the lowest scoring colored region on your <laughs> chart. Right. Okay, there are, so you need, there you are need five to be balanced. Regions. Yes. yes. Right. Now, the, well, you don't need to be because there is actually, it, it's completely valid uh, to take a path where you're not relying that much on foxes. You're, you're loading yes. up and, and it's okay. Um but yes, being balanced is the foxes are there in order to reward balanced play so that there's five different sections that you're filling out over the game. Uh, and however many foxes you unlock, you'll score your lowest of those five sections uh, times the number of foxes that you scored. And you can score as many as five foxes. So if you have a, a really nice balance sheet and you've unlocked all the foxes, you, you can score quite well, even though you haven't done spectacularly in any one of the five regions. This game, um, right. So in addition to the foxes being a bonus, you uh, let's just go over like what are the other kinds of bonuses? Like the other bonuses you can get are I can reroll my dice. Like that's a, and you can spend right. that. You can build them up and then you can spend it. You can also get a plus one. And the plus one is it allows you to use a die you've already used again one time. Is that kind it of like the right description? Any die, it lets you use any die that's showing. So I could use I could use it on my turn to replay any of the dice that I, that I already used, but I can also use it to replay any of the dice that are left over in the tray. And I think on I other people's you. turn, you can use it. Yeah, and on other people's turn, you can use it to use any of the dice at all that appeared in that player's turn. So you could use it to to activate a die that's not in the tray. That's one of the, the dice they set aside for themselves. I see. So yeah, right. I think plus, that was the confusing. Plus one is actually quite strong. Yeah, you know they're they're yes. incredibly strong. That, and, so, and, that's, yeah. and by the way, yeah, that's I I I also take issue with it having a low complexity only because. This is kind of a minefield of connectivity and rules that interlock with each other. You know, I, I place something on one section and that's going to give me a bonus on another section, which is then going to give me a plus one, which I can save later to get an additional die. Uh, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of interconnectivity here. 
And yes, after playing the, the game a while, there are sort of mental patterns you get into. But even after playing it, I think a good 50 or more times now, um, I have yet to get to the part point where it becomes as automatic as, say, Yahtzee is. Right. Right. Yahtzee's got, yeah, I'm not even sure, like, other than some kind of like very basic math about odds with, with Yahtzee. Um, I mean, there are this, some decisions to make there. Like, if, you know, if I've got three fours and, I, and I've already filled in my fours, am I going to go for it to get a four of a kind or a full house or do I reroll or whatever? Sometimes you're faced with some decisions in Yahtzee, but they're all pretty straightforward. They're straightforward. The decisions math you're faced questions. with. Yeah. Every single role in this game, it's like, do I want to play that four and and lock out these bottom three dice that are lower than it? That uh, man, that's leaving me really thin for the, my next role. Do I want to do that? I mean, that four is so useful right now, but do I want to do that? I've got a reroll. I've got three rerolls. Maybe I can afford to do it. Yes, and I have at least so far. I've played the game about twenty times on iOS. Um, Making that decision, I feel like I don't have enough ground. Like I'm just winging it and trying to correct as as I go, but I have no confidence at all that I'm making correct decisions when I do that. Both in terms of like what dice do I re-roll, but also like what what path should I be pursuing because of the nature of these bonuses. In addition to the like the re-rolls and the plus ones, often you'll get to a certain point within a colored area, and you will get you know I'll be able to if I get to this row, if I get to the sixth slot in the green area, I can fill in any blue slot I want. And like some of those blue slots are right. really tough because they require really strange combinations of dice. So I really want to get there in green, and then there's others that are going to fill up stuff in yellow. Or here's something that's going to give me a six in the orange, right. and orange always wants high numbers. Um, and so, <laughs> yes, very quickly, my brain is melting. Yeah, this is yes. not yes. like nothing about this says wait one point um, eight nine when I'm playing it. Yeah, it is, and I, I guess yeah, that's agreed, where the agreed. name comes from um, because how you kind of thread your way through these paths, and there are multiple paths certainly is very clever and is very challenging. Um, and I would say I certainly still have a lot to learn from this game. I do wonder in the end though, like is this game like some board games that I've played that once you've played them enough time, you've kind of, not that you've, you like, obviously you're not going to win every time it's a dice game. There's a lot of randomness, but like there is a puzzle to solve here about kind of like some really good lines to pursue. And right. like, you know, should I be spending my early dice on yellow? Probably not. You know, um, things, so things it that is I think undeniable I know so that, Yeah. Yeah. It's undeniable that likes like many games, maybe even all games, uh, a large part of the enjoyment comes from just trying to grok the situation, the the systems, the puzzle that's here. Uh, once once you have kind of wrapped your head around it, there's still interesting decisions. The game still holds up, I believe. But you're right in the sense that you know part of the appeal is just trying to figure your way through the maze to begin with. Um, and kind of the proof of that is that there are, I think, at least two versions of this game um, that the that they came out with subsequently. Right. that use the same core idea of rolling the six color dice, et cetera, but have completely different rules for what goes down in completely different design sections. So the core is the same, but the puzzle 
is reconfigured. And it was a joy to, to, to tackle that game at the first, you know, even though I had no idea what I was doing. And then somewhere around, you know, the fifth, sixth, seventh time through, it was like, oh, I'm starting to understand now the flow and the pattern of this puzzle. Cool. It, it's, it seems like this is a game where it would not be too hard to do a lot of variations on the core idea. And I think they are, they are in fact doing that. So you've, you've played this game. You said this is a really good one for playing with uh, people of different board game experience. Yes, this is, this is a game that my wife will gladly jump into with us. Um, this is a game that, you know, we can play uh, a family gathering sort of a deal. I, I find it to be, after you've explained the game and tell people not to worry so much that they don't know quite what they're doing, um, folks jump into it and are having a good time seeing what they can make of the puzzle and, and what dice come up for them and that sort of thing. Yeah, in some ways this seems like, I mean, it's an interesting exercise in terms of, you know, understanding the rules of dice, because there are certainly times when you are rolling and I'm looking for something. There is a die I need and I'm kind of going to get lucky or I'm not going to get lucky. That actually is pretty rare in the game, especially early on, where you kind of like you're rolling the dice and then you're looking at this and saying, okay, here's the situation. What path should I start pursuing based upon the situation? And that's... um, that's input yes. randomness. No. Right. And that's in often much more terms, interesting though, to me. Yeah. Yes. In later turns, turns though, especially once, you know, everybody who's played the game quite a bit and understands it in later terms, you are often in a situation where you say to yourself, okay, I've got two re-rolls and I've got my three rolls. I need to get a 10 in the blue section and I need mm-hmm. to get it because that's going to give me the green X, which is then going to give me the purple six, which is then going to give me the, 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 the orange six, which is going to give me the Fox in the orange. Like I, that, that if I can just get I that one thing, yeah. if I can get that one thing, there's this combo unlock. And so, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going for anything else. I'm just going to, I am going to three re-rolls to try to get a 10. <laughs> and if I don't get it, then my game is in shambles. And if I do, I'm the glorious victor, right? Uh, that can definitely happen. Well, especially I think if because of the nature, like maybe this is different when you play in person, you may be a little bit more precious or actually like less inclined to take risks when you're playing with people and you're going to play this two or maybe two or three times, as opposed to like, I'm playing it on my phone solo. I think I'm much more likely to take the, to the swing for the fences approach to try to get a new high score. For, for myself. Well, it depends upon what position I'm in. If 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 uh, my daughter Allie is having a good game and I'm looking over there and I see it's working, uh-huh. then then my mental mode is shifting into what do I have to do in order to piece together uh, a, a combo in order to catch back up. So right. you know there there is that neat aspect to it as well in that you're gonna you're gonna shape your probability angle. Uh, based upon what you're needing out. And then sometimes you're just like, nope, I, I had some really good rolls early on. Everything's coming together. I'm going to sit on my big fat lead and I'll be safe. And then you can get surprised by somebody else. Yeah, that's, a, that's another good, really good use of chance is that calculation of like, where am I? So what risks should I be willing to take? Because I, you know, despite, you know, like my reputation for not liking dice and, um, 
in, in maybe not liking certain aspects of randomness, like one area where I think it's totally okay tends to be like if you're at the end of the game, you know, right? Like it, it's if you're swinging for the fences for the win and I've got a one in four chance of doing it, like that makes for a really interesting and exciting thing. Like I'm never going to, I'm not going to take this game that seriously. It's not world championship right. at chess, but you know, right. when you do swing for the fences and you connect, like that's a great, that's a great moment. And you're it making feels it for, yeah. And good. you're also making it a, an informed decision there too. You're looking at your daughter and you're and like, I think I've the got other, nothing to lose. The other important, the, the other important ingredient here is that the playtime is like 20 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So having, having a game that, you know, culminates in sometimes this sort of swing for the fences thing. Uh, I would find that really obnoxious in a two hour thinkathon. Whereas at the end yes. of a 20, 20 minutes, like that's a very, very different, it's a very, very different standard in my mind. Yeah. Right. This is not something to take that seriously. Anyway, this is, you know, it's a, it's a fun little game and if, right. Having, having a kind of, whether it's yay, tremendous, what, you know, hit it at the end or you collapse utterly, which just seems to be more likely. <laughs> Especially because the, the, the game is clearly like on this knife's edge where when things click early on, it feels like I'm not doing anything. I'm not really making any progress. I'm just placing bricks in a wall and it's slow going, but then you get to the later rounds and suddenly you're starting to link these things together. And it does, the actions do just explode. Like you said, there's a path where like, if I do this one thing, it's going to go bloop, 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 bloop. And five things are different. In fact, there's even a sound effect <laughs> on the iOS that's clearly like designed oh, to trigger oh, the nice. Pavlovian uh, response whenever you get one of these things. And that, and, and um, so you, it does feel like a lot of times, like, oh, I was just so close to like really having this finally sing. And like, I was going to fill out the entire blue section and that was going to make everything else happen. And the clouds would yep. part and the sun would shine and I would be happy forever. You know, um, and I, I haven't had that moment yet. At this point, it bears pointing out that when you're playing two player, the first player's last die is going to come from the leftovers of the second player. So the very last die you ever play in the game is going to be <laughs> one of my three leftovers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one, and I'll remember this forever. I looked over at Ali's and I said, wow, you really need that yellow five. I could use the yellow five, but you know what? I think it's time to reroll Mr. Yellow five. And she gives me this nasty look. And on my last roll, Yellow five came yellow back five. Out and there was nothing I could do. Yellow five. And she jumped up and pointed at the die, you know, pointing at standing up and pointing at the die and laughing. Like it's a great moment. That is, that is a great moment. Um, the, the, the game can produce those moments because I think when I initially looked at this game, you know, like there's no story, there's no theme. Like the closest you come to theme is hey, right. there's foxes. Um, like I, I'm having a tough time finding <laughs> foxes are clever. <laughs> yeah. Foxes are sly, clever. Like that's yeah, kind of no. a marketing thing, but like, there's no narrative that I can discern. In fact, I'm having a hard time thinking of a game with less theme than well, this. Yahtzee, right? Yahtzee. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, 
but at least Yahtzee feels more like I'm gambling. I don't know. It feels a little more pokerish because poke it has poker hands, right? Yahtzee you know, actually, yes, yeah, it, it's actually mapped onto poker. Like so, that's actually already more of a story. Seamless as well, right? Well, what about all those kings and queens and jacks and higher suits? Yeah, but they're they're not. You go they're to not, war. They're not actually they're, baking. They're not actually baking tarts or like. They're just, they're really just 11s and 12s and 13s. Okay, fair enough. Theme, almost no theme. However, you still have, you can still have a surprisingly high investment in this light, you know, game that produces quality emotional moments. It's still at the end of the day, um, not a game I'm dying to play. I don't think it it isn't necessarily for me, but I totally see why this works. And I I do feel like there may be a little maybe a little bit of a Skinner box in this where like I I, I think uh, I've yes. played the game. I've I've got a few scores in the low two hundreds. I think I know that like the maximum high score is around like three twenty five. And so I'm thinking like I, I really need to do better than low two hundreds. Like uh, I I can't let this injustice stand. That you know my high right, school is, is so there. pitiful. Uh, I think it does reflect uh, poorly upon me. All right, any final thoughts about Guns Schon Clever? Nope, that's it. And, and there there are at least two sequels to it uh, that also bear checking out. That have German names. It's one is like twice as clever, and I think it's even more clever, but. Something along those lines. Yeah, that's about, again, that's about as, as thematic as they're going to get is, you know, right. They'll probably be yes. a little clever, 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 clever cubed. Yep. You, you thought this was, you thought that was clever. We'll show you clever. I <laughs> <laughs> think we just did the marketing work for the next three games. Not that that was, not that that was tough. All right, Mark. So let's talk about what uh, set this all in motion here, you you had some thoughts about games or the metaphors in games, the, and that you yeah, you know should we use the term metaphor to describe what's going on in games? So, thoughts? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. Uh, and like I said, what this kicked off from is I was listening to an episode, and I don't even remember what the discussion was that kicked it off. And I'm driving along in my car and. You know, I've, I've been playing and making games professionally for long enough that it, it doesn't take very much to get me along some mental meandering and through the jungles of game design and what's existed and what might exist and how it all connects together. And I found myself thinking a bunch about the different themes that games have and what that even means and how games are a, are a metaphor. Uh, and they are metaphors within metaphors and overlapping metaphors. Um, so just as an example to unpack that a little bit, if I were to ask you, you know, what are we doing when we play Agricola? Well, how would you answer that to somebody? You would say, uh, you're playing a, a family of farmers that are growing your, your, your farming, you're feeding your family and you're trying to build the best farm right. that you can build. Yeah. Yeah. And, and. That is literally not true, right? The, the thing we're literally doing is that we are moving little wooden pieces around on cardboard and drawing cards, and, and that's what we're literally doing. 
Right. It's only once we enter into this metaphorical world of the imaginary space we all share that we can say things like, you know, hey, it's it's harvest time and, and don't forget you need to be able to feed your family. That's not that's not literally what's happening in the game. Like if I no, were to write right. a computer program to adjudicate this game, you know, the computer program is like, you know, count number of family members times two minus one, if just appeared, reduce that from food supply, you know, uh, a very mechanical way of looking at what you're doing in the game. Right. And I got to thinking about all the things that these metaphors do for us. And the first thing that came to mind, and it was because I'm sure it was you and Tom talking about the rules for a game and, and standing back at it's like, you know, all of us have got such an amazing amount of rules, knowledge packed into our brains. It's, it's, crazy. It's crazy how much just sheer data is in our brains about the rules for all these games. Sometimes we need some refreshers and reminders, but there's a lot in there. And the only way that's possible is that we adopt these metaphors so thoroughly that when I ask you, what do you do in this game? You immediately jump into the role of, well, we're farmers. Like, right. That's not what we're doing. It's not what we're doing in the least. Like, I don't go into that game thinking, what would a farmer do? I'm, I'm more... I'm, I'm interacting with the, the mechanics. You know, I'm picking up these two cards and placing my person here because mechanically speaking, I know the interactions between those things, not because an actual medieval farmer would be really interested in sheep at this point in the game, right? So, but the metaphor in that case is there really, uh, it, there, is a, there, is a, there is a level of LARPing to it. And, and Every game will have a different mix of all these things the metaphors are doing for us. Storytelling, helping us package and remember rules, making sense out of why certain things are legal and illegal. Um, you know, it, and storytelling that we do, LARPing it, you know, actually feeling like I'm doing this. When we were playing Panamax, uh, to a greater extent in Panamax, I feel like somebody who's solving shipping logistics problems. Yeah then I feel like an actual farmer when I'm playing Agricola. For whatever reason, uh, Panamax serves kind of more LARPy. Like if I show up in a, in a, it's, in it's, a captain's it's, outfit to a Panamax game. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm down for it. I have it totally more. works. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It totally works. And, and, no, and it's I'm a very strong thematic game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul, yes. Paul was talking. And I mean, to, oh, sorry, go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah. No, go, go, go with Paul. Well, I just, that was the thing I was thinking with Paul last week was talking about, uh, you know, working on his um, short term memory and being able to, you know, see if he, he felt like he's lost a digit of the, you know, seven plus or minus two digits that human beings generally can keep in their short term memory. And he was saying he feels like he's gotten older and that number has gone down by one since he was at the height of his mental powers in his 20s or, or something like that. Um, and then got discussions about like how he's working on that. And then, you know, a lot of the exercises he was doing to increase his short term memory were, you know, actually like techniques for chunking the numbers you know, ways of linking yeah. these groups of numbers together so that he could actually remember many more at a, a single time. And like, was that really, was that cheating? Or, you know, because like, can, can you actually like increase that, you know, getting that seventh digit back from six? Well, you can increase your performance in 
repeating back these numbers, but that didn't mean you got the slot back. It just means you were able to chunk this stuff. And I think that's a little bit of what you're talking about is I think that often these the the metaphor that you're describing is going to work a lot of times to help us you know, it's because you were you called this data, and that felt like the wrong word to me. But like we we do have these chunks, we do have these uh, pathways that we've learned before that we can then apply, and we can bring a lot of information to bear in what is going to feel to us just like a, as a single digit. And so I can say something to you like, Mark, this is one of those games where there's company money and your personal money, and the person with the personal money, most personal <laughs> money at the end, is the winner. It's like we know there's a lot like you that tells you a lot about that game and you've played those games and you're probably already thinking, Oh, this is not a game about running my company really well. This is a game about me getting rich and I've played these games. So I have some priors about how to approach this puzzle problem. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that, if that was, point. That's... but that's kind of like a metaphor, you know, like the, I always feel yeah, like team, good narrative help, help us learn without a good story we can struggle to understand it at the beginning. And I struggled at the beginning with, you know, um, that's so clever um, to actually understand. There is, there is really no metaphor if you lean back on, right. Other than, other than your preexisting knowledge of kind of how Yahtzee and Roland rights work in general, uh, there is no lattice of metaphors that you can lean on there to try to make sense of what's happening here. Right. There is no fallback position. Uh, when I was playing, uh, oh, I forget the train game we played uh, over the, the weekend that I was there. Age of Steam. Um, but when we were playing, when it was, yeah, yes. When we were playing that, I was able to default back to, well, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to make efficient lines and I will have an area of the map that's kind of more mine than it is anybody else's. So I am falling back to not necessarily, it's kind of a real world me metaphor, but it's also a board gaming metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm relying on a strategy that, yes, is grounded in real life, but also is granted in other similar games I've played where I can kind of grab a strategy out of thin air based on the shape of this game and the metaphors it's presenting to me. And it, it won't necessarily be optimal, but at least will hold up and give me a direction that I can follow for this game. Also, it will give me a basis on which I can analyze what I did in this game and figure out what I would want to do next time. Whereas a very abstract game, it's a lot harder to do that because you really are just on the bare metal there. You're, you're analyzing just the mechanics and how they interact with each other. And that can very quickly be extraordinarily overwhelming for a human brain. Yeah, and I find I... I don't particularly like abstracts. I hadn't thought about why, but you know, that may be one of them is that that lack of narrative or lack of metaphor to kind of like get me going can be frustrating. And I'm not the most patient learner of learners of games. Like I can bounce off a game if I'm like too tired or finding it tough. Um, I'm, I'm not the most persistent sometimes. One thing yeah, I was thinking and, about with and, yo, go, go ahead. ahead. No, it was I, the, the other thing I was thinking is just there's some games that that metaphor uh, and the game that I was thinking about particularly when I was wondering is uh, the Castles of the Mad King game, where I can play that game and I can I can engage with the game solely on the metaphor of you are putting rooms together to form a castle. 
I can ignore all the point scoring and everything. There, there mm-hmm. are reasons for the point scoring. Like, and there's, there's sub metaphors inside there. Like living rooms don't want to be noisy. That all right. makes sense. Right. But mm-hmm. I can also just choose to jump into that game and say, Oh, I can make underground rooms. What if I make like an underground mushroom King castle and I just make a really interesting looking castle what was my what was my score? Twenty three. I don't care. Look at this castle I have, right? Uh, so you know, metaphor can also you know help us engage on the storytelling and larping level of these games, which can be very satisfactory on their own and also in conjunction with the more competitive game oriented aspect of these games. Well, tell me what you think of this. I mean, um, every game you make is engages in this metaphor in, in, in the sense also that like, we are not reproducing reality. Like we, it's always going to be an abstraction. It's just a question of like, what is the, the thing that we want to do or we want to model, you know, like to what degree are we abstracting it? And so like, there's a simulationist tradition in games, for example, like war games, you know, may like they have thick rules and there'll be a lot of, details that go to those rules and there will be edge cases and am i right in kind of saying like the more you start to get into the nitty-gritty of reproducing a real world experience i mean it's still metaphor but you've you've reduced the metaphor like you've you've um you you know, you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're, you're engaging less yeah. the metaphor, still metaphor, but you're engaging with it less. Whereas like abstracts are like, you're engaging with the, the almost like the, the most, because like, you know, this little cube here, that's an army that controls, you know, London. That's what that cube is. You know, if you're playing, right. if you're playing diplomacy or something. Um, right, right. And that abstraction, I think, so I think, can be a thing that that can be both good and bad. There's times when we look at our board games and these abstractions, and you say, "Well, this isn't giving the situation the um, the the detail and the and the nuance and and the, all of the caveats that this subject deserves." And and gamers may push back. It's like, "Well, it's a game. It's of course it's an abstraction. It's not going to accurately." you know, reflect reality and, and, and do justice to complex, uh, concepts. Like there just seems like something that, that we're That's interesting. So I, I think there's, I think there's two things going on and they may be related. And, and you like, again, this is one of the things I love about game design is that as much as you think about stuff and talk about it, there's always, I think, new, nooks and crannies and connections to find. And I find it endlessly fascinating. So, um, and I'm sure somebody out there, you know, maybe in academia or professional game designers have talked about this a bunch, but just off the cuff as I'm thinking here, the person who made diplomacy more or less said, I'm trying to make a simulation of what a political diplomatic situation is, but I don't want it to be granular. I want it to be high level. Okay. Right. So there's, it's almost like there's two axes. One is, do I have a simulation intent or do I have a gamist sort of intent? So for example, when, uh, when Reiner Kinesium made raw, I do not for a moment believe that he said, I want to make a game that gives you the feel of what it's like to be the, the ancient Egyptian civilization. I think he had some mechanics that worked really well and he pasted a theme on top of it. Right. Right. 
So what we've got is we've got a game that's intent and design kind of brings that across is please engage with these mechanics. They're interesting interactions here. And to help you, the player, understand some of these interactions, I'm going to put a theme on it so that your brain can start to understand this stuff. But really, the point is for you to engage with the mechanics more than anything else. And then we Mm. can switch to the entire other side of things where some war games, and I think war games is the place to find this more than anything, are miniatures games. Mm -hmm. If you went and told them, look, I could, with the snap of my fingers, get rid of all the rule books and everything. You just do what you think an army would do in this situation, and it will be automatically adjudicated in a fair manner. There's a lot of people who go sign me up for that game right now. Like, I, I really just want to play the what would I do as a general in this situation or what would I do as a person in this fictitious situation? And I don't necessarily want to get in and min-max the rules. In fact, there's, you know, there's in certain gaming traditions, there's even these pejorative terms we use for players who do that. It's like, right. why are you min-maxing the rules? Why are you such a rules lawyer? That's not what we're doing right now, Right. So I, I, I definitely think that you're, yeah, it's not necessarily true also, that it did it. Yeah. And I think diplomacy is an interesting example of one that's in kind of a corner of the quadrant where I think the intent was for us to engage on it more on the simulation side of things, the what's it like to be a diplomat and have to come to agreements, uh, but on the, same, on the same hand doesn't have like weather charts and terrain costs and... Right. Uh, you yeah, know, the thing is, the, the thing it's simulating is not waging a war in Europe. The thing it's simulating is the diplomatic experience, maybe of of waging a war on Europe. And I mean, I've certainly spent plenty of time as a teenager studying that board and reading about different opens and different like things that you can consider when you play the the seven different nations. But I regard that almost as like um, that's almost like basic strategy in blackjack. Like you, you just need to know a little bit of the core stuff so that like, I understand the basic strategies in this game so that I can then get to the good stuff, which is the negotiations and, you know, doing reads of other people and building consensus and, you know, the, the things that, that a lot of players like me enjoy in a game of, of diplomacy. Like you still need that fundamental understanding of the game to do it in the first place. I think you just showed in your example, though, you showed your your background as a video game producer because i think you you're really focused on that uh, you know that player experience of you know hey if, if you want to be you know mark's designing a game and it's called you know battlefield general uh you know what does battlefield general actually want to do what's the what's the fun stuff you want to do and you're focusing on that experience rather than oh guys, guess what? I have a really cool core rule set that we can then, right. you know, implement in three dimensions and in real time. And that is going to, everyone is going yeah. to appreciate how well this reproduces reality. <laughs> and I, I don't think it's just video games. I think, I think you bring up a good point there, but I don't think it's just video games. And like, I'm such a pan gamer. I, I love games of all different forms. Um, I will bring up a, a common experience you and I have, and we'll let the audience in on a little bit. We played an Airsoft game at Gen Con once. Yes. Uh, that, that Airsoft game was being played by 98% of the players as a tactical game. It was a simulation. There were rules for taking wounds. There was rules with regards to what weapons you could use. There were stats. There was different classes of character. 
Uh, you, Tom, and I did not engage in that game on that level in the least, right? We engaged in that game and we engaged on it in a, what would it be like to be a marketing executive, a lawyer, and a salesperson caught in an aliens type situation? And, uh, and yes, we were also playing it for comedy, uh, but <laughs> we engaged in it on a purely like, what is the story being told here? Not on the mechanics. And I think there's a lot of games that allow for a big mix of that sort of thing. And different games are intended to be played with different mixes of that. I bring up video games, but there are, there are also video games and I play them like Slay the Spire, where I very much want to know all the details about how the mechanics work. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not engaging in that on a storytelling level. I'm engaging straight in with the mechanics, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah. think video games do offer an opportunity to have kind of an invisible GM that just kind of says, trust me, I'll handle all the data for you. You right. just make decisions that are smart for you, right? Uh, but but I don't think all games should be that because it's also fun to get in there and go, no, wait, hand me, hand me the big pile of rules and I want to try to find the cool exploits and loopholes and optimal strategies because that's fun. Yeah. And it, right. And that's certainly who I was playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was 12 is I was absolutely looking towards munchkinning my character, which was just like, how do I, yes. you know, let me find those seams to make myself the, the, you know, the ultimate character then. And that's not really right. what I want. You know, hopefully Trey, the older gamer, you know, doesn't want that anymore. Um, there are different audiences for this, obviously. And, and I remembering, especially that airsoft moment, um, like that was not a great experience for some of the players that we played with because I, they were annoyed with us because they had their expectations. Like most people who played that game of what it was supposed to be. What we did find was is right. that we, there was an audience for our game and it was the people who had been running the game, you know, every 15 minutes at, at Gen Con very much appreciated right. <laughs> a, a different, um, and a different take on this thing. And this is an area that has been analyzed a whole bunch by people who are very smart and have produced games uh, successfully mm -hmm. based on it, uh, where you can have games and, and, and kind of one of the most important things is everybody's on the same page with regards to what the social contract is and what right. the agenda of this game is, right? And so if, if you get a D&D game where three people want to do collaborative storytelling and the fourth person wants to use darts as his ranger because darts give him his full strength bonus. Right. Uh, and so we get this ridiculous, you know, situation where the preferred weapon of this ranger inside the fiction is to throw these darts for devastating damage to every monster we meet. We've got a clash now. And, right. and, and like one person can be saying to the storytellers, why are you undermining our optimal chances for survival? And the other people are turning to him and saying, why are you undermining our, you know, collective agreement with regards to what this fantasy world should operate like? So getting, getting into situations both through well-designed rules and through social agreement, what all of our common agreements are so we can be at least enough on the same page to be able to use our human social skills to smooth over everything is super, super important. And that goes for board games as well, like, because we get to the point where you know, somebody can ask, hey, is it okay if I just buy all of these shares of this other person's company and give them a bunch of money? And my immediate answer kind of snippily was no. <laughs> like, <laughs> obviously not. Obviously, you don't do that in the middle of a board game, just kind of like hand it to another player because you're bored of this. No, no, you can't do that. 
Uh, but there may be there, but there may be social agreements where that is fine because it's like, look, we're just figuring out the parameters of this game. It's okay for me to do something unusual. Right, and I think right that can be, like you said that can get that can get different that can be granular on different levels. We've described a number of it's, of examples there of like clash of metaphor. The metaphor that people that different players were engaging with was 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 slightly different. I think uh, in in the last game brain episode, uh, you know, Paul described a negotiation situation in an eighteen xx game, and maybe it's helpful to actually look at at that conflict that he had just through the lens of metaphor, because I think there was a, it was a, you know, they're not playing radically different games. They're playing 18 XX. They know what they're getting into, but I think there was a difference in what the common understanding there was where like one player was expecting Paul to maximize his score. And that would be the honorable way to play, you know, even if he's losing and Paul did not feel like, well, I, I don't need to maximize my score if I'm not going to win. I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't have any responsibility to attack the leader so that you in second place right. have a chance to win. Um, you know, even if that means my score doesn't go up, you know, like I don't have that responsibility. And I, I think like those, that was a clash of like, what, what's actually the expectation here in, in playing these games. And I think Paul, Paul is often engaging in a yeah. different metaphor. Yeah, yeah and especially because in Paul, in Paul in particular, and I think many of us extend the metaphor out to uh, more than just one playthrough of the game. So, yes. hey, um, you know, you're right. I don't necessarily have to maximize my score. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that you are ruined so that you never backstab me again. Right? And it's like, yep. is that a legitimate move inside a game? Is that is that okay to do or is that is that kind of dirty? Right? And I've been in different social circles where, in some cases, it's considered not only inbounds, but kind of de rigueur. Uh, and mm -hmm. I've been in certain social circles where it's like, that's kind of ugly to even be thinking that way. Why are you doing this? Why are you bringing this ugliness into our game metaphor group? You, right? you bad person, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think there is an objective correct answer. I think it all has to do with what we all agree is going on. and you know, on reflection, what is it doing to us as people? And is it giving us the experiences we want to have? That sounds like a, a, a good place, a good place to end it. Um, I mean, the, yeah, that, that's, would, that would be a nice segue to the, like, why we play games thing, right? You know, like what the kind of experiences we want, yes, fun, fun, good. We like fun, but there's hopefully that, you know, there's, there's more to it a lot of times. Like what, what is it that we're getting out of here, uh, out of these games and out of these experiences? And I think that again, is going to go to the metaphor. Like it works both ways. Like the metaphor helps you understand the game. And like you said, maybe get to the mechanics, but I think the metaphor can also allow the game to be expanded out to other stuff too. Right. Like hopefully we are yes. learning real things about the world through playing games. This is our chance to practice. This is our chance to kind of take certain ideas and things for a spin. Uh, you know, that's very low stakes compared to the, a lot of the things that we do in, in real life. So like that, that uh, metaphor engine works both ways in terms of the way it leverages the, the experience of the player to the game. No, that's a really good point. Absolutely. And, um, when you said, you know, this is a good place to wrap it up with, uh, you know, what are we getting out of gaming? I'm going to 
I'm going to call back to the LARP that I played over the weekend. The I don't know if they invented this phrase, but they certainly use it a lot. At Jackalope, they say, people are more important than games. Like that's that's a mantra. And what it's trying to get across is, I don't care about your excuses about what you should be doing here, what your character would do, or what the point of the game is. Uh, the number one rule here is people are more important than games. So if you're doing something that, you know, objectively makes you a jackass, you're just a jackass, right? <laughs> no, that's certainly a core. Yeah, that's not unique to, to Jackalope, but it's great that they're, they've implemented it. That's, a, that's a, certainly a Nordic thing. And it's, and it's, yes. I think it's, yeah. par, it's part of a lot of standard safety protocol now. And there's a lot of benefit when you're starting up a game to simply say, you, all of you, our players are more important than the game. Like these are our, these are our values, and that's an important that's an important thing to remember. It you know, and that means like if you don't want to play this game, you're not feeling you're not digging it. You can leave, and no one and, and that's and that is just fine. Um, and that actually yeah. allows people to then engage more. Engage uh, has a lot of different meanings, but part of that is engage with the metaphor. Like the fact that you know you can bail, that you know that you as a player are valued, and that you know you're you're not going to break things if you if there's something you don't want to do because you just don't want to do it um that right. actually allows you to you know emotionally be a little bit more vulnerable and you've you've established trust you've established that you know we're here to for us to as people have a you know to have an experience a valuable experience and and so it becomes more likely that it actually happens 100% well well, Mark, thank you for being uh, on the show. I hope this is not um, the last time. Um, you know, we, we get, we're going to hopefully see each other in November at uh, BGGCon in in uh, Dallas. We are definitely have very plans. Yeah, that's this, this, my younger least... daughter's birthday is always at the same time, so that's always her birthday present when you know pandemics allow is to go and go to board game. That that is the plan. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on, and um, I I enjoyed our conversation. Any any final thoughts? I enjoyed the heck of it. Thank you so much. Uh, no, I am all thought it out. Wait, you know, any other any other thoughts would be r- rambling. So <laughs> I've done quite enough of that. <laughs> this is the part where I actually do the the sign off information. <laughs> this yeah. is when I should be doing. This was Game Brain. This is produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, and me. Uh, thanks to Edomaros Pelic. You can reach us at email at contact at gamebrainpod.com. And let's, let's just skip to the end. Go play some games with friends or go make some friends with games. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>